Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Sam Giordano, ABI Executive Director. On June 23rd, the Supreme Court shook bankruptcy jurisdiction to its core, so to speak, holding by five to four that the bankruptcy court lacks the constitutional power to enter final judgment on garden variety state law claims brought as counterclaims by the debtor against creditors who have filed proofs of claim in the case. For the actual litigants, this perhaps marks the end of the tortured dispute between the estates of former Playboy model Anna Nicole Smith and Pierce Marshall, the son of Anna Nicole's late husband, billionaire Texas oil man Howard Marshall. Anna Nicole filed for bankruptcy in Los Angeles back in 1995, and even before that, litigation arose over competing claims to Howard's large estate. The case made multiple trips to various state and federal courts in both Texas and California, and even one prior decision in the Supreme Court. Chief Justice Roberts, in the opening of his majority opinion, compared the legal saga to the fictional, if not cliched, bleak house of Charles Dickens. But for bankruptcy professionals, the case brings back echoes of the Supreme Court's marathon ruling in 1982, which upended the jurisdictional scheme created by Congress in 1978 and led to a new statutory regime in 1984. And it was that scheme that the Congress found lacking, at least in part. As is perhaps typical of bankruptcy cases in the Supreme Court, we will likely have more questions about what comes next than the finality you hope for when the court speaks. With me today to discuss the implications are Professor Ken Klee, one of the architects of the 1978 Code. He's also the author of Bankruptcy and the Supreme Court, published in 2008. Since 1997, Ken has also taught bankruptcy and reorganization law at the UCLA School of Law. We're also joined by Stephen Sather of Baron Neuberger and Sinsley in Austin, Texas, who has blogged extensively about this case at his Texas Bankruptcy Lawyers blog, a great blog that we follow on ABI's blog exchange. Welcome, Ken and Steve, to ABI Podcasts. It's great to be here, Sam. Thanks, Sam. Well, let's cut right to the chase. After uh, you've uh, had time to reflect on the opinion and uh, what it might mean, uh, let me first ask, is this result a, a big deal, or is it one that parties and courts can simply work around now that they have some guidance about uh, this particular section of the bankruptcy code? Ken, let me start with you. Well, Sam, I, I think it's a real big deal, um, and that parties will attempt to work around it. But uh, the court has a schizophrenic opinion. On the one hand, it says that its holding is very narrow, that it's only going to apply to state law counterclaims to proofs of claim, and that this isn't going to shake up a whole bunch of things. This is in response to the defense charge that this is going to be a gross reallocation of work to the district judges from the bankruptcy judges. Um, the language of the majority opinion is extremely broad and very troubling, and it redraws the lines of power in a way that's different than anything we've seen in bankruptcy court in a long, long time. And uh, I, I think that um, yesterday on uh, July 11th, uh, Judge Robert Gerber in New York in the Bearing Point case um, 
decided that he would allow a uh, litigation trust to litigate something in state court, even though the plan had retained jurisdiction to litigate it in bankruptcy court, based on the doubts about his power mm-hmm. as a result of versus Marshall, and that we're going to see uh, a lot more of this. I think, by and large, the bankruptcy judges will interpret the holding narrowly and will try to retain as much power as possible. And the district courts will affirm that because they don't want to have to do the work. But I think when this gets to the courts of appeals, and that'll probably take a few years, the courts of appeals are going to read the language and reasoning of the majority opinion and are going to come to the conclusion that the bankruptcy judges have extremely circumscribed power. And there there are two or three things that I'd like to discuss when the time is right um, why this is so. One has to do with the power to consent to have something heard by the bankruptcy court. Another has to do with the line that the court now has redrawn between federal causes of action and state causes of action, which used to be the line, to causes of action that have to do with the adjudication of claims on the one hand versus augmenting the estate on the other hand. And I I think those two areas uh, cast considerable uh, cloud over what's going on in bankruptcy court. Got it. Okay, Steve, uh, new doubts about the bankruptcy court's power or something we can all work around and live with? Well, I think if Northern Pipeline uh, was an atomic bomb, uh, this decision is more of an IED. (laughs) Um, You know, while it's going to cause a lot of confusion in the short run, and a lot of litigating over turf. But I think in the long run, the bankruptcy system will adjust and will find a way to keep doing uh, what we've been doing for the last 30 years. Um, The fact that it took the Supreme Court uh, nearly 30 years to revisit Marathon uh, suggests that perhaps um, we've got a uh, good while to go before we see anything else uh, momentous. And I agree with Ken that the the opinion was schizophrenic in that it said it was narrow and the reasoning was very broad. But I do think that parties can seize on that narrow language uh, in order to find a way to keep things uh, running. But this is not like... Um, Northern Pipeline, where the decision was so momentous that the Supreme Court had to suspend it for a year, and then after Congress forgot to uh, act, uh, there was a a period where the whole system shut down for 10 days. So I I think this is a uh, case where uh, pragmatic minds will uh, find a way around it, uh, but we're going to be inconvenienced uh, in the short term. And perhaps more importantly, we're going to have to spend some time really thinking about what is essential to bankruptcy, what is unique about bankruptcy that would allow it to be adjudicated by an Article I judge. Right. Let's talk about some uh, practical instances where this is likely uh, to come up. The court seems to have eliminated the was perhaps a, a risk uh, previously that creditors, by the mere act of filing claims, uh, had then submitted to bankruptcy court jurisdiction with respect to counterclaims uh, by the debtor. So has the court um, 
solved a practical problem of this kind of uh, jurisdiction by ambush. And does it therefore mean that more creditor claims might be filed in bankruptcy court absent that fear? What do you think, Steve? Um, I, I think they've definitely accomplished that because in the opinion, Chief Justice Roberts says, well, of course they didn't consent. You know, they had nowhere else to go to file a proof of claim. And so it certainly lifts the bar for creditors consenting. Um, obviously, if they file a claim, they're consenting to have that claim adjudicated by the bankruptcy court. But I don't think it uh, goes much further than that. Hi, Sam. This is Ken. I don't think anybody knows what the status of consent is today in the wake of Stern versus Marshall. The opinion went on to say that Pierce didn't consent um, by filing this claim to have the counterclaim brought, but it also cited Katchen versus Landy and Langenkamp versus Culp with approval. Right. In those cases, the consequence of filing the proof of claim was to subject the claimant to an affirmative preference recovery. And they also cited grand financiaria with respect to whether the filing of the proof of claim is going to waive a jury trial right, and they could have but didn't cite the Gardner case on whether there's a waiver of sovereign immunity as a result of a filing of a proof of claim. I think after Stern versus Marshall, all of these things are up in the air. And the reason I say that is is that the majority opinion puts heavy weight on the grand financiera decision and notes that it redraws the line between actions to augment the estate and actions to resolve the, the proof of claim. And Grand Financiero was a 548 fraudulent transfer cause of action, not a common law cause of action where the debtors or the trustees standing in the creditor's shoes, but a federally created cause of action. And the majority opinion intimates that the bankruptcy court has no power to enter a final order in that kind of a cause of action. If so, I think the same principle should apply to preferences, maybe only in those states where there are preference causes of action under state law, but maybe across the board. And I, I just don't know what consent is going to uh, mean in the wake of Stern versus Marshall. I do know this. The rules are going to have to be redrawn to very clearly delineate when somebody is affirmatively consenting to jurisdiction. They've created a whole new category where we don't have a jurisdictional scheme uh, for consent. Under the current law, with respect to a non-core matter, it says in 157C2 that the parties can consent to have that finally determined by a bankruptcy judge. I'm not sure they can after Stern versus Marshall. But this is a different category. This is a core matter mm -hmm. over which bankruptcy court lacks power. And if the parties are going to be able to consent there, I mean, I would think if they can consent to have a non-core matter heard by the bankruptcy court, they ought to be able to consent here as well. But how that consent is manifest and that it's voluntary, I agree. The mere filing of a proof of claim is not going to be able to get it done anymore. Okay. Well, you brought up fraudulent conveyance actions and, and also that while the court's holding was limited to 157B2C, the reasoning is as you both acknowledged, uh, broad and could be applied to other code provisions like B2H, which the court has previously held to be suits at common law, or B2K, 
regarding the validity and priority of liens, also a state law. So do you think that the case extends to these types of actions? Steve, do you agree that the case extends to these types of actions? And if so, to what effect? I think it clearly applies to fraudulent conveyance actions uh, based on the uh, majority's uh, reading of Grand Financiera. However, beyond that, I think what we need to look at is, you know, number one, is this something that applies to parceling out the property of the estate? Um, if it does, I think there's a much better argument that it is still um, core in that, you know, bankruptcy courts uh, under the Act uh, enjoyed essentially in rem jurisdiction over the property of the estate. So if you're determining the validity of a lien on property of the estate, you are determining um, how to allocate that property. Uh, if you're determining exemptions, even though it is under state law in most cases, you're drawing that line between what is property of the estate and what is property of the debtor. Um, I think the other area where we're going to keep core jurisdiction is to the extent that there is a collective aspect to what we are doing, we're going to find that that is more in the nature of a public right that the bankruptcy court can adjudicate. For example, the discharge of the debtor is a collective proceeding between the debtor and all of his creditors. Um, a plan of reorganization is a collective um, proceeding. So I think the more that you're either dealing with property of the estate dealing in a, or dealing in a collective matter, it's going to stay core. And to the extent that it looks like a state court lawsuit, it's going to be non-core. But I think that even where it's um, non-core or it's called core, but it's really not constitutional to do it as core, uh, the parties are going to be able to consent uh, just the same as parties can consent to a jury trial before a U.S. magistrate. Ken, what do you think of that roadmap, that distinction? Looks like core, smells like core. <laughs> I, I don't think core and non-core matter that much anymore. I think the court's drawn a different line. The, the court basically has said the emperor has no clothes on that this is not an adjunct to the circuit. It's not an adjunct to the district. It's its own court. These judges are entering final orders, and they're not Article Three judges. They can't do this. Mm -hmm. That's what the majority opinion is saying. And they're carving out a narrow area of claims adjudication to participate in the race and how narrow that's going to be. And even Justice Scalia questions that in the concurrence, says maybe since we've done it all these years, there's an exception here. At argument, uh, Justice Sotomayor asked whether the bankruptcy court has jurisdiction to hear objections to claims. So we are, we are living in a brave new world. I happen to agree with Steve that I think the line should be, does this involve distribution of the race? Claims of priority, claims of equitable subordination, claims of validity of lien, um, all of these things uh, should be within the... Uh, the race, and therefore within the purview of a specialized uh, court for that purpose. Whether that extends, though, to 
determining cure amounts on motions to assume executory contracts? I don't know. I thought when the Second Circuit decided its Orion decision that the decision was just nuts. How can you have an assumption of an executory contract and not be able to determine the cure amounts? But after Stern versus Marshall, I'm not so sure that we're not going to see Orion Pictures become the law of the land and really disrupt bankruptcy jurisdiction. Uh, hopefully the plan will, will still stay within the public rights exception. But, you know, there's a lot of things we can put in a plan. And if the court confirms it, uh, the court, uh, with its collateral attack uh, doctrines and uh, mootness doctrines, uh, might be able to get done through the plan a lot of things that it can't get done uh, during the case based on Stern versus Marshall. Uh, because these uh, matters come up so frequently in cases, um, looking at um, Justice Breyer's uh, dissent on behalf of his four colleagues, his uh, fear of the uh, impracticality, as he put it, of handling uh, proofs of claim and compulsory counterclaims in different courts, what he called the jurisdictional ping-pong between the courts leading to inefficiencies and costs and delays that obviously in bankruptcy a few can afford. Uh, do you all share that fear and to the same extent that he appears to share it? I would say probably not as much because I think the one thing that's critical here is that the Supreme Court is foisting more jurisdiction onto the U.S. district judges, uh, whether they want it or not. And I think one possibility is that uh, we will develop expedited uh, procedures for submitting proposed findings of fact and conclusions of law that uh, the U.S. district judges uh, will basically rubber stamp in order to avoid having a lot of uh, bankruptcy cases on their docket. And with the ping-pong between the bankruptcy court and state court, I think in Marshall what you had was a case where the bankruptcy court should have stepped in to stop the competing probate court decisions, because under the automatic stay, it's the gatekeeper. It gets to decide which proceedings go on. And whether it was through poor tactics or inadvertence or outright fraud, um, you had two competing proceedings going on uh, when that never should have been allowed. So I think it can be uh, minimized. I don't think the automatic stay applies to um, an estate cause of action as plaintiff. Anna Nicole Smith was suing uh, Pierce Marshall in the Texas probate proceedings. She had filed the suit even before Howard died. And I think that when the estate is a plaintiff, the automatic stay doesn't apply to prevent the litigation from going forward. So I, I, I agree, though, with Steve on the merits of this question. I don't think it's going to be as severe as Justice Breyer thinks. All of these things should be available as defenses under Section 558 of the Bankruptcy Code to defeat the assertion of a claim. That should be clear. What's unclear is whether you can assert a mandatory counterclaim, a compulsory counterclaim, and get an affirmative recovery 
uh, after Stern versus Marshall. And I think what the majority is saying is, is you can, if the counterclaim is four square with the determination of the claim. Mm -hmm. And I guess my question would be, is 502D still constitutional? Is the court's opinion in Page versus Rogers still good law that uh, the preference defendant can offset the recovery against the claim? And I think offset and recoupment are still going to be permitted here. Whether affirmative recovery is going to be permitted may turn on whether the counterclaim is four square with the claim or whether it raises new and different causes of action like Vicki Lynn uh, Marshall's uh, uh, claim did against Pierce for tortious interference with her expectancy of gift. That had nothing to do with his defamation claim against her, really. It was it was a different theory. Right. Actually, I think they were related in that truth was a defense to the defamation action. And so if she's being sued for saying, you know, Pierce interfered with my inheritance, and he really did, then I think the two are related. So I think there is there is a problem in trying to figure out what's intimately related and what's not. And, and just to follow up on Steve's point about the um, the, the rubber stamp reference, um, that's I, I take it how we solve the uh, the majority's assertion that their holding does not meaningfully change the division of labor in the current statute because it's contemplated, I guess, that the the district court will simply affirm whatever the bankruptcy court has has found in its um, proposed findings. There's an, there's an irony here. I think most bankruptcy practitioners would agree that district courts give more credence to an appeal than they do to a review and a report and recommendation. And, and the irony of this Supreme Court's opinion is, is that it's going to throw many more categories out of the appeal category and into the report and recommendation category. So I think some of these common law causes of action are going to get shorter shrift in the district court than they do today. Mm -hmm. And it could actually be a good thing because one of the shortfalls of the two-step bankruptcy appellate process is that it takes forever. And so if you can effectively cut out one step, uh, you've avoided using a lot of uh, resources uh, by the parties. Speaking of cutting things out, I think the bankruptcy appellate panels are going to be cut out as a result of this opinion. A query what a bankruptcy appellate panel of three bankruptcy judges can do sitting as an appellate forum after Stern versus Marshall in any event. But structurally, because the appeals only go there from final orders of the bankruptcy judge, now if there are going to be a lot more reports and recommendations, those go to the district court and straight to the circuit. In those areas that have appellate panels, there should be a lot less work for the bankruptcy appellate panels. Unless perhaps they decide that three Article One judges equals one Article Three judge. <laughs> uh, let me ask about the effect on uh, pending cases. Uh, does the court's ruling apply to pending litigation, and can it be applied Therefore, sort of retroactively to orders that are still subject to judicial review, uh, Ken. I think it has to. It's unconstitutional. I mean, right. I don't. I don't think. I don't think that uh, it could. It could apply anything other than uh, retroactively. 
Do you agree, Steve? Yeah, I agree with Ken because um, certainly with a proceeding that is in progress, um, you know, the parties would have the ability to say, you know, when I agreed that this was a core proceeding, that was before that got thrown out as unconstitutional. And what's really going to be interesting is for cases that were decided in the past year, uh, whether under Rule 60B, they can come in and say, you know, mistake, inadvertent surprise, or excusable neglect, so throw out that invalid uh, judgment. But I think that probably, I don't think that the decision goes to the jurisdiction of the court. So I think uh, beyond that one-year look-back period under Rule 60B, uh, I think you're fairly safe. Okay. The, uh, the, so the court has held that uh, at least part of this law is unconstitutional, so that begs the question, should Congress attempt to fix it, and can it be fixed in a way other than granting Article Three status to bankruptcy judges, of which at least I'm pretty skeptical. Uh, can you say just amend 502D, as uh, Ken, I think, suggested earlier? Um, or is there some other fix that should be uh, attempted which would uh, provide a little more certainty than, than we have right now in the wake of the decision? What do you think, Ken? Well, Sam, uh, if I were crafting amendments on this, I, I would craft some very narrow amendments to uh, deal with what I regard as some very serious gaps after this uh, opinion. First, I'd mirror something like 157C2 to make it very clear that in core but unconstitutional matters, <laughs> the parties can consent to bankruptcy court jurisdiction. I mean, who knows if that's going to be constitutional, but at least the statute should provide for the bankruptcy court to hear uh, those things where the parties consent, just like they would in an arbitration or like they would before a magistrate or before a private judge, for that matter. So in other words, the, the, po the power to waive their entitlement to an Article Three judge. That's right. And, mm -hmm. and I'd like to see that teed up and, and done in the statute with procedures so that it's clearly done by consent of the parties, and, and that will tee the issue up. And I think that goes a long way towards solving a lot of the problems. I'd also like to see the statute amended to make clear that the core list um, is expanded to specifically deal with things like the cure amounts on executory contracts and equitable subordination and priority disputes and, you know, things of the sort that, that Steve and I, I think, think should be within the power of the bankruptcy judge. But I'd like to see an express statutory reference that indicates congressional intent to put it there. And then I, I do think down the line, if you need to have some judges that enter these orders that are Article Three judges, rather than making all of the existing bankruptcy judges Article Three judges, which is not politically possible, I think maybe having uh, some Article Three judges within the different districts that are dedicated, in effect, to hearing bankruptcy matters uh, may be a stopgap measure, but only when we have an election that aligns the party in the White House with the parties in the <laughs> Congress. Yeah, okay. Sounds and, good. And on that, I, I agree with uh, Ken, because the first thing you have to do is enable consent, and you just have to close that statutory loophole 
where you have core jurisdiction that the bankruptcy court can't constitutionally uh, adjudicate. So you just need to call it something else that, that works. How about a, a final prediction on what we can expect to see, maybe uh, short-term uh, and, uh, and longer-term? Are we going to see more of uh, uh, chipping away at, uh, at the court's jurisdiction, which perhaps you know, causes some uh, major uh, crisis down the road? Or, again, is this um, uh, something that will, will stand us for the next uh, 15 or 20 years? Steve? Um, I think uh, it, you're going to have parties jockeying for advantage under this, but for the most part, unless it looks clearly like a state court lawsuit, I think things pretty much stay the same. I think that to the extent that there is a larger constitutional problem out there uh, looming, I think uh, the parties will continue to ignore that for the next 30 years, and by then perhaps you have a uh, different Supreme Court. Well, Congress rewrites the law every 40 years, so... 1898, 1938, 1978. So 2018, we're due for a for a redo, probably. If Ken is still around to participate. <laughs> well, sure, Sam. Aren't you planning to uh, go back there and work as staff? I'll, uh, I'll do it. Um, yeah. No. <laughs> um, uh, l- l- no. Let me just disagree with uh, some of the conclusions Steve reached in a, in a few respects. I think that um, the parties here are going to raise the constitutional issues at every turn. And um, the people who are going to do it are the fraudulent transfer defendants, the preference defendants, the directors and officers on their breach of fiduciary duty claims and things of the sort. Um, The litigation in the bankruptcy court isn't going to look the same. And although people sort of looked the other way after Northern Pipeline and um, pretended that there was a constitutional court and avoided the issue, um, I think now, with these five justices squarely indicating uh, limits on the power of a non-Article III judge to enter a final order, that uh, it's going to embolden parties to raise this issue. Mm-hmm. I do agree that the bankruptcy judges and district judges, for the most part, will construe this opinion very narrowly and be loath to strip away at the power of the bankruptcy court. But by the time this gets up to the courts of appeals... Know, some years hence, I think there will be courts of appeals who read that majority opinion and come to the conclusion that the power of the bankruptcy court is much more limited than it was before Stern versus Marshall came down in very many contexts. As the uh, Chief Justice uh, put it very strongly, I think, we cannot compromise the integrity of the system of separated powers and the role of the judiciary in that system, even with respect to challenges that may seem innocuous at first blush. So future challenges almost invited, I think. Well, I think the irony is that one consequence of this opinion is that you will see a lot more abstentions by the bankruptcy court in favor of state courts, which will mean that you will have controversies being decided uh, in many cases by elected state court judges who don't have life tenure, right. uh, are not protected from uh, having their salaries reduced, and are not protected from being thrown out of office by voters 
who have no clue who they are other than their party affiliation. And so I think the practical effect in that area may be completely different than the protection of the Article Three judiciary uh, that the Chief Justice uh, was hoping to achieve. Agreed. And you would know coming from Texas. <laughs> and in some states where the ability to litigate in state court is backed up for years, uh, this could greatly detract from the efficiency of bankruptcy administration and recovery of claims for creditors. Agreed. Well, that's our conversation for today. We thank both Ken and Steve for joining us. Uh, a great job on a sometimes dense issue, but one with great importance, obviously, to the operation of the bankruptcy system. So thanks, Ken and Steve. You've got a sequel to your book, Ken, and this is a CLE provider's dream. So I, I know Steve will be speaking at Texas Bar Programs about Stern v. Marshall for a while. Thank you both. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. Uh, and to our audience, this marks our 100th podcast posted to our website at www.abi.org. You can listen or download any in the series, and we look forward to our next conversation with bankruptcy figures in the news. Until next time for the American Bankruptcy Institute podcast, this is Sam Giordano saying good day.